Welcome to Men in Charge. I'm Tony Flynn. And I'm Kevin Decker. Tony, we have a very special radio play today, although it's a real-time interview with real people, real fictional characters. <laughs> that's right. We had their blood drawn to calm them down before recording. That's, that's right. you got to keep people's uh, sanguinity level low enough. Uh, this is not Jerry Springer, ladies and gentlemen. No, this is Jerry dozed off in the corner. <laughs> Today's episode is Inside the Croft Dynasty. It's a special episode within an episode of Roger Basement's What's New With You, his interview program. So obviously you recognize the name right off the bat, Sid and Marty Croft, the amazing entrepreneurs of real life full length puppetry, mainly in the 1970s uh, that Kevin, I grew up with. What more needs to be said? I think listeners, as they tune in, they'll discover that you grew up with it all alone. Yes. And for good reason, because this is a remarkable cultural phenomenon that Kevin nostalgically dismembers. So for all of you out there who have been wondering, isn't there more history? Isn't there a hidden mythology behind Dr. Shrinker? The answer is yes, (laughs) and you're going to hear the details very soon. And then with enough pills, you'll forget it. Hello, I'm Roger Basement, second runner-up to be the first honorary royal baritone in Nigeria 2021. Welcome to a very special edition of What's New With You, with me, Roger Basement. In light of the great success of J.R.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings, Tolkien's son and authorial heir, Christopher, has shared with the world reams and reams of unpublished work from his father detailing the contours of Middle-earth. Brian Herbert, son of Dune author Frank Herbert, has certainly mined his father's every marginal note and backs of old napkins to produce a lot more words about Dune. More recently, Adam Nimoy, son of the lovable Mr. Spock, produced a revealing documentary about his father, Leonard Nimoy. In light of these revelations, we here at What's New With You wondered about this question. Why aren't daughters of famous genre actors and authors stepping up to the plate? (laughs) But then... Our production staff came into possession of the unpublished memoirs of the heir to another fantastical dynasty, and dare we say it, phantasmagorical. Today I'll be sitting down with Mr. Seymour Croft, who inherited the legacy of such amazing world-building franchises as Lidsville, Land of the Lost, Sigmund and the Sea Monsters, and, of course, the peerless H.R. Puffin Stuff. Far from merely being Saturday morning television pablum, these worlds of Sid and Marty Croft, Seymour's two fathers, are only now being explored by scholars and statisticians for their hidden riches. Mr. Croft, thank you for spending time with us today. Please, call me Seymour, and I'm happy to be here. We know that you flew in all the way from Indonesia. Yes, I maintain a primary residence there. I found, in light of the popularity of my father's television shows, that the actinic glare of the Hollywood spotlight was too much for me. I don't need that kind of attention. Welcome back to the States. Could you take us back to the beginning and share with us some of the things that helped build the Sid and Marty Croft empire? Well, first and foremost, drugs. Let's face it. 
When their first production, H.R. Puffin Stuff, aired in 1969, there weren't enough kids watching Saturday morning cartoons to sustain just any new ideas. My fathers, I was adopted by both of them, their brothers, knew that they would have to pitch to a wider audience. And they knew, some say from personal experience, that that audience was probably dropping LSD into their milk and Fruit Loops all of a Saturday morning and then plopping down on the couch for a day's trip out. That explains a lot. Why don't we go ahead and give a listen to a clip from the first episode? If that's how you want to use our time together, uh, sure. Okay, now you're making me doubt my own interviewing skills. What should we really do next? Let's talk about how they got their start. At the height of their fame, scholars clock it at 1972, most believe that the Croft brothers were fifth-generation puppeteers from Greece. But these were only scurrilous rumors. Yeah, we know that. Their own publicist fabricated that story to get them more attention in their early days. They actually grew up in Montreal and Long Island. They could pass for Greek, though. I grew up eating a lot of dolmas. You get sick of it. Dad and Dad, too, just wanted to work in the greatest puppet shows of the Six Flags amusement parks. For most of the 70s, the Empire Theater, Six Flags Over Mid-America's premier puppet theater, was synonymous with long runs of some of the greatest Croft puppet masterpieces. Such as? Well, they started with an adaptation of Tom Sawyer. It was Missouri, after all. But audiences started to find the puppet pursuit of Becky Thatcher by Injun Joe through the Mississippi Valley Caves uh, uncomfortable. Ouch! That was a lesson right there, no? Absolutely. Their further productions were all adaptations geared toward the puppetry form. Croft's The Iliad, Croft's Mahabharata, Sid and Marty Croft's Chekhov's Cherry Orchard, Croft's Revenge of Anna Karenina. Surprising choice there. Well, the dads were experimental. They discovered the one key rule to making low-cost, debatable-quality 1970s kids programming. Use green screens as much as you can and giant puppets. Actors of all different heights and gestural personalities in giant puppet suits. Hence, the right stuff really began with HR Puppet Stuff. You made two points. But you only promised one key rule to the craft art. Okay, I, I think I'm ready for that video clip now. Can I freshen your studio, Scott Seymour? Bill, let's go to clip. HR Puffin Stuff, push your brain when things get rough. HR Puffin Stuff, can't do a little because you can't do enough. HR Puffin Stuff, please your brain when things get rough. HR Puffin Stuff, can't do a little because Men in Charge, you know you're on the radio now, right? Well, there we go. This is Roger Basement talking with Seymour Croft, heir to the Sid and Marty Croft legacy. That episode of H.R. Puffin Stuff was up for an Emmy, was it not? Twice, actually. Once for a sound design, and once for a new category, Best Makeup Design for a Television Witch. That was for the design of Witchy Poo, of course. Yes, a lovely actress, Billy Hayes. One never gets tired of her shrill delivery. And she's an A1 cackler, top of the class, absolutely smashing. Right. 
Now, listeners, Seymour and I are now joined by Jacqueline Stern-Harris, whom Sid and Marty Croft named as their literary and media executor after their untimely deaths. Actually, they took care of that before their deaths. Careful planners, Dad and Dad, too. Hello, Jacqueline. My understanding is that you like to be called Mongo. Why is that? Actually, I hate it. But at academic conferences on the Croft's body of work, as well as at conventions, folks seem to demand that I use that nickname. Perhaps they see something in me that they also glimpsed long ago in the Magic Mongo segments on the Croft Super Show in 1977 and 78. And by... Magic Mongo, you must be referring to the Croft's innovative micro-series that was filmed on location at a beach, remarkable for the times, and featured three forgettable teens who uncork a klutzy genie from a bottle. The Mongo of Magic Mongo. And then the teens impressed the Brooklyn-accented genie into their employ, leading to further jackanapery. But, importantly, when Mongo finally figures out what freedom means for him, he escapes from Lorraine, Donald, and Christie entirely and opens up a kosher deli in Hackensack. It was always his dream to do that, yes. Mongo, if that is your real middle name, I'm curious what it means to be the executor of the Croft Literary and Media Estate. Well... I've brought with me some of the hundreds of thousands of pages of unproduced ideas from Sid and Marty Croft. These reside, with many others, at the Scripps Library of Historically Significant Puppetry. Let's see here. Sid wrote, What about using blue screen to have a friendly white whale living in an everyday suburban neighborhood in Pomona? To which Marty replied, too costly, for realism would need constant destruction of physical set by comedy whale flukes. That was a particularly fertile period for my dads. Cocaine? Un undoubtedly. What they're describing there, Peter Benchley and the Squeamish Whale, hails from around the same time as a bunch of my dad's other unproduced brilliant ideas like Captain Cool and the Kongs in Hell and Dr. Shrinker versus Puffin Stuff. That was also a bit of a dark period for them, I think. They'd pull crossover ideas out whenever the Saturday morning broadcasting ethos seemed to be turning grim, yes. So I understand that in addition to all these undiscovered gems, Sid and Marty produced a good deal of background material for each of their Saturday morning franchises. Material that is only now available for the e-readers of the general public. All of the world-building was there because they were both perfectionists. They wanted everything, no matter how absurd or how silly, to be completely believable. Complete dissuspension of suspension of disbelief. Well put. So, if one of the bugaloos crashed and burned, they wanted you to feel the heat of the fire. When Electra Woman and Dinah Girl get beaten up by their nemesis Glitter Rock and his goon Sideman, Sid and Marty needed the audience to really feel their pain, however fake it clearly was in reality. They'd have shown blood if you could have shown blood on a Saturday morning feature. But perhaps it's a good idea to protect our youngsters from images that might frighten them. Now, Mongo 
Please, just call me Jacqueline. Or Jackie, if you want. Actually, since I have a doctorate, call me Dr. Jackie. Dr. Jackie? Now it sounds like you're the host of the program. <laughs> no, not at all. Seriously, though, could you possibly host for the next, uh, about 20 minutes? I could pop out to the hot dog stand around the corner. I'm famished. No, what? I'm sorry, I can't host this show. Even I think that's unprofessional, and I'm a shiftless trust baby. But instead, why don't we take a look at the Croft Brothers' books of poems that sketch the ancient cosmologies and fables of their fictive lands. Here's the earliest one. Idiotica Cosmographia, moons and suns visited by the far-out space nuts. Handsome book. I know there are a whole series of these now. We've a whole team of lexicographers and legendarialists working non-stop. Three hours a day, Tuesdays and Wednesdays, trying to publish all the Croft's precious words. And, of course, their designs for new kinds of puppets that were neither marionettes, nor puppets, nor Muppets. Now, here's a map they worked on for some years. Okay, what do we have here? An amusement park map? Oh, oh no, I don't think dear. that's what no, it no. is. I'm sorry, what's wrong? We try not to talk about the world of Sid and Marty Croft, their money pit of an indoor theme park in Atlanta, Georgia. Indoor theme park? A recipe for disaster, I'd say. How long did it stay open? Oh, a little more than six months in 1976. It's as though the place was cursed. It didn't help that in their advertising, the dads chose artistic integrity over mass appeal. What do you mean? Their extensive leaflet campaign ignored showing the rides in Lidsville-themed marionette show and instead featured cartoons of what looked like mimes. If they were mimes, they were very fey mimes indeed. Maybe they were, but I prefer to think that the people of Atlanta just weren't ready for it yet. And now that same space is the world headquarters for CNN. Puppetry. Magical thinking. Some things never change. Listener, this is a bit sudden, but we'll be right back after a short break. Is your work life like a daily glass of sun-warmed tap water? No? Well, good for you. Really, good for you. Now listen to Men in Charge and stop acting so pleased with yourself. There was something deep inside the hat. What could that something be? Then cautiously each step he took, he climbed upon the brim to look. And all at once the hat began to shake and rock. Look out! Oh, how's that for a topper? 
Wow, I think we just heard the mellifluous tones of the legendary Charles Nelson Riley there at the end of the clip. Yes, yes, he played Hoodoo the Magician, the primary antagonist of the show Lidsville, for 17 glorious episodes in 1972. A fun fact, this evil magician had a series of henchmen, all of whom looked like talking anthropomorphic headwear. Well, now, did they look like they were talking, or did we in fact hear them talk? Um, uh, not sure. Yes, we heard them talk. So, in fact, Hoodoo's thugs looked like anthropomorphic headgear, and they talked to speak with precision. Yeah, I, I guess so. Uh, welcome back, listeners. This is Roger Basement, correcting Seymour Croft, heir to the Sid and Marty Croft puppetry empire. Hello, Seymour. Hello. Also with us is Jacqueline Mongo Stern Harris, the Croft's literary and media executor. Buongiorno, come stai? Good morning to you, too. And listener, someone new is joining us for the last part of our trek through the phantasmagorical labyrinth of worlds created by Sid and Marty Croft. Uh, hey, hey, just to be clear, my dads were very clear that they never dropped acid on set. Okay. Well... Let's welcome the world's greatest fan of perhaps the Croft's most memorable family saga set in the original Jurassic Park, Land of the Lost. With us now is content creator and professional Sid and Marty Croft fan, Ellie Van Shrapnel. <coughs> Hello, Roger. Hello, Jacqueline. And I can't believe I'm saying this, but... Hello, Seymour Croft, bearer of the sacred blood of the creators, Volley Croft! Oh, hello, Ellie. Ellie, your heart's in the right place, but when you put it the way you did, your hobby sounds like a cult. Ellie, I understand you are the editor and publisher of the only Land of the Lost fanzine operating out of Saskatchewan. Yes, it's called the 7,000 of the Library of Skulls, and... I do YouTube reviews of all the 1974-76 episodes of Land of the Lost and a podcast. And you can get me on Instagram. And That's enough, Ellie. I fear you're hyperventilating. And whatever comes to mind for you is popping out as all nonsense words. Uh, I'm curious about the name of the zine, the 7,000 of the Library of Skulls. Yes. According to the Library of Skulls, race records of the civilization of the Sleestack people living millions of years ago among the dinosaurs, there are always 7,000 living Sleestack at any given time. I'm sorry. Sleestacks? Ugh, you know, the reptilian insect dinosauroids that were constantly plaguing Marshall, Will, and Holly. And in season three, Uncle Jack, after Rick, departed through a time portal. I'm afraid I don't really know what you're talking about. Instead of a pre-show brief today, my production team gave me this binder full of flyers from dry cleaners. It's well made, though. Thanks, Jeff. It's all right, Roger. Doing great. Ellie, now try to talk some sense. Now, I hear that you frequent the conventions of the Nostalgia Children's Programming Set. That's right. My one-woman show called I, Holly, subtitled A Not-So-Routine Expedition, was a sellout at all the cons I did the last two years. I do the whole thing from the top of a yellow raft floating in a kiddie pool. They eat it up. 
Now, Ellie, I, I should let you know that there's an entirely new area of scholarship opening up among the researchers of the Scripps Library of Historically Significant Puppetry. Feminists read Crofts. <gasps> Is there? Really? My one-woman show was not only an exploration of the land of the lost only female character, Holly, as she finds her independent voice. It's also a chance to vicariously punish Marshall, Will, and even Uncle Jack through a flash-forward sequence I added after the fourth performance. For all the times they wouldn't listen to Holly, even though she was right. <laughs> Many of the greatest plays of the Western stage have been written out of the goal of getting petty revenge on fictional characters in other competing plays. Yes, for, for a long time at Hanna-Barbera. Don't, don't say the names of those devils. Please, let him continue. Well, in the mid-70s, there was a real civil war going on in Hanna-Barbera between the writers of The Scooby-Doo Show and its spin-off and rival Scrappy-Doo to the Rescue. That was the period in which the audience of kids were mystified by why both Scoob and Scrappy kept getting hospitalized for what, from an animator's perspective, would look like a minor pratfall on screen. Well, we all know who won that war. I'm sorry, but... Who's this Scrappy-Doo you mentioned? Mongo, tell me more about feminist Reed Croft. Why, sure, Ellie. You know, Simone de Beauvoir, in her extended metaphor of the magic flute and the living island, said Hey, that why does Ellie get to call you Mongo and we don't? Well, to be fair, Roger, I haven't tried to call her that yet. Well, try. Hey, Mongo, what's shaking? It's Dr. Jackie to you, too, Seymour. Ellie gets different treatment because, well, as Marshall told Will and Holly when they were going over the rapids and into the distant past, youngsters, lean in. That's exactly what he said. That's right. You see, despite most of my own studies focusing on code shifting in the social semiotics of Bigfoot and Wild Boy, I have a passing knowledge of the whole Croft corpus. That commitment to generalism can really take you places, whether in the study of multimedia puppetry empires or even psychedelic American studies. Wow, Mongo, are you my mentor now? Have we networked? Ellie, I don't mean to interrupt interactions that I can't really understand, but I believe you've brought one of your own fan creations onto the show for our other guests, and, of course, the viewing audience at home to enjoy. That's right, and this ties in so well with your last segment. Ta-da! Yeah! Wow, what is this? My goodness, how long did this diorama take you? This is a one-tenth scale model of... I recognize that world's longest freestanding escalator. That's CNN headquarters. No, it's a model. A micro world of Sid and Marty Croft indoor theme park in Atlanta, just like you were saying. Are you sure? That looks like a tiny, tiny Anderson Cooper. I've got models of all four of the rides, too. And they actually move. Hey! Hey, the carousel of crystal creatures. The find your way out of the pinball machine ride. There were only four rides? What kind of amusement park is that? The real park was a solid two and a half hour experience stem to stern, and only slightly more expensive than a day's ticket to Six Flags over Georgia. And hey, you've even got a replica of the animatronic Betty Broadbent. What? 
Betty Broadbent, the famous tattooed lady of the 1930s? No, this is a wacky purple hippopotamus voiced by Ruth Buzzy. Jeez, Roger, get with the times. Well, it's a marvelous replica. As someone who wasn't born early enough to visit... During the park's six months in operation. Yes, well, it's good to see an in-the-flesh version. Hey, Roger, I spotted that Anderson Cooper, too. And isn't that a tiny, tiny Don Lemon buying a pretzel and a lemonade? Oh, no! Ellie, your model's on fire! What's the problem? That was one of the design flaws of the real world of Sid and Marty Croft. They hedged their bets that if the part didn't take off, then the insurance money... Well, that's almost all the time we have here on What's New With You. Our production staff should probably grab the fire extinguishers and open the studio doors for... <coughs> fresh air. My model! My lovely model! Oh, don't worry, Ellie. Here's what you want to do. Pick a cheap, sketchy insurance company that'll let you post-date the beginning of coverage for your model. Then, have the original company sell that policy with the promise of an eventual kickback to... Yes, as if things weren't already dire enough with the incineration of Ellie Van Shrapnel's one-tenth scale model, ladies and gentlemen, Sid and Marty Croft also created the Donnie and Marie variety show. Well, you can't get everything right. Thanks, Seymour Croft. And I'm happy to report that we were able to get that studio fire tamped down quickly. And, may I say, production staff, gracefully. Welcome back. I have been and will continue to be for the indefinite future, Roger Basement. And thanks for listening to today's bumper volume-sized edition of What's New With You? <laughs> Micro World of Sid and Marty Croft Indoor Amusement Park burned down! There, there, Ellie. Here, girl, take a Kleenex. <laughs> Ellie, in the world of Croft magic... Y yes? In the world of Croft magic, we always say that when one time portal closes, somewhere else a massive interdimensional magician's hat opens. <laughs> yeah, maybe this is... Maybe this is the push I've needed to complete my life-sized model of the world of the Land of the Lost. There you go. That's the spirit. And as Snorky, the elephant from the Banana Splits Adventure Hour, always said... But Banana Splits is disputed canon. Well, that looks like a good place to end our conversation and get someone from the station janitorial staff to clean up all these tears. Let me conclude with a stirring and memorable line from within the vast corpus of the Croft Brothers' empire of psychedelic fantasy. Truly, everybody who goes to Lidsville really flips his lid. And I flipped my lid for you, Seymour Croft. Well, thanks for having me on, Roger. And, and hey, dads, if you're out there watching today, remember, we outlived both Hannah and Barbara. We? All right, that's plainly disturbing. We've also flipped our lids for the executor of the Croft estate, Jacqueline Mont uh, Stern Harries. And thanks to Ellie Van Shrapnel, who, it appears, is the Croft's biggest fan. <laughs> but, but, my micro world of Sid and Marty Croft? <laughs> That's a young woman who's really got her work cut out for her, rebuilding a whole lost world out of the ashes of a previous diorama. Well, thanks for listening. I'm Roger Basement, 
And this has been What's New With You. Kevin, it's time to thank our cast, but I'm going to thank you first for composing it. Oh. And to Scott Herrick for creating Roger Basement for us. Yeah, that's right. Special thanks to Scott. We'd also like to thank our cast for today, Tony Flynn, Scott Herrick, Nancy Roth, Sarah O'Hare, Kevin Decker as production assistant number eight, and Jody Stewart-Strobelt as Maureen Hager. We'd also like to thank the four people who, if they formed a pyramid, <laughs> it would be flat. Carrie Boyce, Vern Windham, Nisha Shrum, Nancy Roth, and the only man who found five of his lost marbles, Brian Lindsay. 